Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Fear of pain changes the way that we act. We have good intentions. We want to be uh, good people, upright. We want to do the right thing. But the fear of pain changes the way we act. When the little voice inside your head says, this is going to hurt, then the way that you approach moving forward changes completely. You become hesitant. You grit your teeth. You anticipate the pain. You can almost feel it before it happens And it changes you. If that's true with physical pain, it's also true, maybe even more true with psychological, even spiritual pain. It becomes difficult to do the things that we know will lead to pain, that we know will lead to suffering. And so as a result, you lose a little hope. What's the point of it all? You ask yourself, if I do this, it's only going to hurt. It's only going to hurt. It's only going to cause me to suffer. Why bother? Maybe you don't do it at all. You assimilate. You tell yourself. You make excuses for why the thing that that you thought you had to do is actually not required of you. And maybe even is a bad thing to do that you should avoid. Or you do it, but you get angry about it. You do it defensively. You do it full of anxiety. The despair, the assimilation, the anxiety, all of those are products of fear, the fear of pain. And Christians, at our worst, fit this description to a T. At our worst, we are despairing, we are assimilated, and we're anxious, we're afraid of the pain. And our behavior shows it. Like if you don't see the point of sharing grace, being transparent about your faith, because it won't do any good, that's despair. That's despair. I mean, at our worst, we tell ourselves people don't change. Our character is set. There are good people and there are bad people. And when you run into bad people, just avoid them. They won't change. There's no point in sharing grace with those people you will only get yourself hurt. But when you think that way, you succumb to despair. If you're more fed up with bad Christians than you are with the world, that's assimilation. That's assimilation. If the people you think are the real problem are the Christians, then you've assimilated to the world. At our worst, we can become more concerned with distancing ourselves from the wrong kind of Christian than we are concerned about distancing ourselves from our sin. I don't know about you, but I've felt this way before. There are people who are really loud about their Christianity, and I wish they would just be quiet. Because the way they represent us makes us all look bad. And you can start thinking to yourself that that if we could just get those people to turn it down, everything would be better. And that's the real problem. But when we think that way, we've made excuses 
so that we don't have to be loud like that. We've made excuses to side, as it were, with the world against the church. If you're more interested in fighting the world than you are in saving the world, that's anxiety. That's the anxiety that fear produces. If when you think about the world, you mainly think about something that we need to burn down, then you are in the grip of fear. Like At our worst, as Christians, we are like Jonah, overlooking the city, gleeful at the thought of its coming destruction. At our worst, we can be like that, wanting the fire to come down and consume the city where we live. And frankly, all of this is understandable. It may not be pretty, but it is natural. And I'm not sharing these things as a way of like condemning or, or shaming the people who feel them, not at all. I think this fear is something we all feel. All of this behavior, all of the things we look at in ourselves and, and in our church and in our fellow Christians, and we see those things and we say, well, that shouldn't be that way. Most of it, I think, flows from fear. We are the way we are at our worst because of how afraid we are. And I want to extend some grace to you and acknowledge that the ugliness and failure that I see doesn't reflect a, a lack of, of character on your part so much as fear. I acknowledge you have good intentions. I acknowledge you want to follow after Christ, but you also have a reasonable fear that stands in the way. Now, as I show that grace to you, I do it so that you can show grace to one another. Because when you look around, you're going to see that nobody in the room is a very good Christian, measured by the standards of Christ. That God has not seen fit to put you in a perfect church. He's surrounded you with bad examples that you need to show grace to rather than to judge. Because like you, they too are subject to fear. To fear. And if we can extend that grace to one another, we can extend it to those outside this place and see that the fear is everywhere. The fear that distorts our good intentions is everywhere. As Peter speaks to us, one thing should become very clear in the words that Peter says, and it is that life in Christ is incompatible with fear. They don't go together. Like oil and water, they don't mix. You cannot live the life you're called to live in fear. It doesn't work. So Peter, in the passage that we've looked at, actually faces our fears head on. Peter knows that we're afraid. He knows that we're afraid because he's been there. Scripture records his own weaknesses, his own failures, his own fears. He's not just the guy who denied Christ when he was given the opportunity to stand up for him. He's also the guy who, when he had the opportunity to lead on grace, tried to get all of the Gentile converts convert to Judaism to please the guys back in Jerusalem instead of recognizing the, the all-encompassing scope of God's plan. And, and Paul had to stand up to him, to his face. That's Peter. 
Peter knows what it's like to have been afraid. And he says to us, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. If Christ is your Lord, you should not fear. So if you look at those first couple of sentences, this is verse 13 and 14. Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? These are words of encouragement that he gives. You're worried that you're going to suffer. You're worried that bad things are going to happen to you. He encourages you that if you're zealous for the good, being zealous for the good is a defense against pain. It's a defense against pain. If you are zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? Now, you might read a verse like that out of context and think, problem solved. I'm just going to be zealous for the good, and I will never suffer. But you really have to read this verse way out of context to get that message from it. The one thing I I hope we know by now is Peter's never going to say, don't worry, if you do this, you won't suffer. Right? That's so far from Peter's idea of the way reality in Christ works that he doesn't ever give us even a hint of that. If you are zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? Right? You ought to be zealous for good. To be zealous for good means you don't bring down just punishment on yourself. And yet, those who are zealous for good do sometimes suffer. And Peter says this in the next sentence, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So it's interesting. There's a little paradox here. You're afraid of suffering. You're afraid of suffering, Peter says. Well, look, be zealous to do what is good and who is there to harm you. But if you should suffer, think about this. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, there is a blessing. So it's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. The suffering that you endure righteously, the suffering that you endure on behalf of Christ is a participation In Christ's suffering, for which you will be blessed. Why are you afraid of it? Why be afraid of such a blessing? There is nothing to be afraid of. Either you will suffer no harm, or the harm that you will suffer will result in a blessing. Why be afraid? Jesus and fear don't mix. The things that we're called on to do as Christians cannot be accomplished by the fearful and cannot be accomplished out of fear. There's no such thing as fearful Christianity. Just like there's no such thing as corrupt Christianity or sinful Christianity. There's not a middle way where we can follow Christ and also be fearful. We're called to turn our backs on our fear, to have No fear. The Apostle John in 1 John 4 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If the goal of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Christ, to perfect us in love, then one of the consequences of that is... uh, a receding of fear. We should not become more fearful, but less. We should even be a little bit fearless. 
fearless. When you're fearless, then you live the way Peter describes in the next verse, in verse 15. He tells us in that verse, basically, uh, what we should have, what we should do with it, and how we should do it. Let's take a look at that. Here we get to our text. Here we get to apologetics. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Think about that. So we shouldn't be troubled. We shouldn't be fearful. We should honor Christ in our hearts as holy. We should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us. So what do you have when you're fearless? Hope. You have a hope in you. A hope that needs some explanation A hope that that doesn't interpret itself. A hope that doesn't make sense to people who don't have it. And thus it needs to be explained, even defended. It needs to be articulated because it doesn't make sense based on the externals. But those who are fearless in Christ will have hope and will share it. We'll talk about it. We'll be transparent about it. We'll let it leak out into every area of their life. They will do all that they do for the glory of God. That hope will show in the work of their hands. So you will have hope and you will share it and you will do it with gentleness and respect. It matters that you have the hope and it matters that you share it, but it matters how you do it as well. The Apostle Paul reminded young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7, that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is how we live fearlessly. This is how we're meant to live in Christ. So one question we have to think about is is the question of, of making a defense. Are you always prepared to make a defense That passage, that's verse 15, is the classic proof text on apologetics, the defense of the faith, but it's worth pausing here to consider exactly what it is that that Peter's getting at. Like, what are the responsibilities here? What is he trying to teach? I think for one thing, obviously, he expects that we will be open about our hope, open about Christ. We'll be willing to talk about him, eager to share him, to share his grace with the world around us whenever we have the opportunity. Not be silent about it, secretive about it. That's something we might think of as like giving testimony or bearing witness to the work that God has done in us. And clearly that's an expectation that Peter has. But he seems to have an expectation of something more. There there are consequences from that kind of openness and that kind of sharing, and questions come up, arguments come up. There's a need to give an explanation, a rationale, a justification to explain and articulate that faith. So it actually goes a little farther than bearing witness. As a Christian, you should give thought to the reason for your hope. What is the reason for your hope? 
Now, one way not to answer the question is to think of it this way. Sometimes we have a transactional view of salvation. The reason that I'm a Christian is because I studied all the options, I weighed all the evidence, and I made a due diligence, good choice based on my own intelligence and judgments. And therefore, here I stand in the correct place because I made correct observations and judgments. And it's all by grace, but frankly, it does show I'm pretty smart. There's a way we have sometimes of justifying after the fact our faith, as if we were the ones who are responsible for it. And we ought to have some sort of credit for it. In a world full of bad people, I'm not one of them. Just saying. But this faith is a work of the Spirit. This faith is something God has done in us, not something we have done ourselves. It's not as a result of our having rationally evaluated all of the arguments. I'm not saying that reason never plays a part, that we don't think through these things. But we know even in human psychology that oftentimes we make choices and then come up with reasons to explain why other people should make the choices we made like that. We tell ourselves we're a lot more rational than we really are. So Peter's not going down a sort of rationalist trail here, saying it's really important that you insist that everybody does the kind of due diligence that you did before coming to faith. When I try to think about the reason for the hope that is in me, I don't think about myself so much. I think about the Holy Spirit. Not what is the reason, but who is the reason. We have to give thought to the reason for our hope in order to be able to talk about it. To be able to talk about it, communicate it, and answer questions about it. We should know how to articulate the faith. And I don't mean we should know how to articulate our faith, like subjectively. Like you ought to be able to, to, to tell people how you feel about your spirituality. Something like that. That's great. But that's not what Peter has in mind here. He's talking about the faith. Right? Objectively. Like you ought to be able to articulate the Christian faith. To speak about it. To answer questions about it. Even to teach it. If we have hope, but we cannot say what that hope is exactly, we have a hope, but, but it's sort of vague and difficult to articulate how firm a grasp do we have on it. So one of the things you'll see at Grace, if you look at the front of your order of worship, you uh, turn to the beginning here. You'll, you'll read these words. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace more depth and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. If you're the kind of person that underlines things, you could underline these words, seeking, finding, and sharing. And pay close attention to the order in which you find them. It's important to share grace with the world, but sharing is at the end of that list. And before it comes, finding, finding. How can you share what you've never found? I think oftentimes because the church is eager for participation, we're eager to have people do things, and it always feels like there's more work than people to do. Uh, One of the things churches are prone to do is to put people to work sharing things that they've never actually found. 
And as a result, you can, can be in a position where you know what the right answer is, but you've never really understood it. You've never really found it for yourself. It's important not just to know what the message is and spread it, but to find the grace that the message is about. Find it and then share it. Find it for real and you cannot not share it. It's one of the things that finding grace for real does. It matters that we share it, but it also matters how we share it. Peter says do it with gentleness and respect, not with anger and defensiveness. Because those come from fear. Those come from anxiety. Okay, but let's say we do this. Let's say we we do speak readily and openly, articulating our faith, the faith. And we do it gently and, and with respect, and it doesn't work. Then what do we do? Like Peter, maybe maybe things were easy for Peter, and it was enough just to be like really nice and patiently answer people's questions, and they would suddenly say, yeah, you win, Peter, I want to be a Christian. But it doesn't really work that way for us. So what do we do when Peter's advice doesn't work? What do we do? And I think this is, this is maybe the problem when we start talking about apologetics as a discipline, right? When you think about verse 15 and you think about apologetics, because a lot of times when we're drawn to the study of apologetics, we're drawn to it precisely because we're looking for ways to win over our non-Christian friends, to humiliate them into the kingdom with love, right? You want arguments. I, I remember being in an apologetics class, and, and you have to understand that an apologetics class at a Reformed seminary is such a, a high uh, theoretical kind of thing that, that you wouldn't know that's what it was unless someone told you what it was. It would, it would feel more like philosophy or something. But there was a guy on the front row of this class who constantly would raise his hand and ask the professor, okay, but how would I use this on an atheist? Constantly, every time. And I realized this guy doesn't know that he's in sort of a theoretical, philosophical class. He thinks he's at the apologetics dojo. And that he's here to learn, like, what are the holds I can use? What are the techniques I can use so I can defeat my enemies for Christ? Which is fear. It's fear. Like, when you go to the meeting and, and you bring your guns and knives and your bombs, you're afraid something's going to happen there. right? When, when you go over to a person you love, to a friend to meet with them, you don't wear your Kevlar. A lot of times we seek this good knowledge, but we seek it out of fear. And it distorts the way we use it. it distorts the way we use it. We get into arguments. <laughs> we fail to win. And that only confirms our fears. I was afraid this was not going to work. And sure enough, it didn't. My fears have now been confirmed. The unbelievers did not fall to their knees in tears. It didn't work. I want you to notice something. Peter's not giving you a formula for how to make it work. Peter, in his advice, seems to assume it might not work. Like He makes an allowance that the suffering will take place. He says the reason that you should do this isn't that this has been proven effective, it's not uh, do it this way 
and you will win. It's do it this way and you will have a clear conscience. Do it this way and you will receive the blessing that comes from righteous endurance. Do it this way and you will have freedom from fearfulness and the troubled mind. Those are his concerns. He believes in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the rest. What he's concerned for you is that you do it with a clear conscience. You do it with hope. You do it as Christ would do it. That you endure. And that you not have fear. I think that's the importance of gentleness and respect here. You think about gentleness and respect. One Peter could be saying this. Something like the... Uh, uh, you get more flies from honey argument, right? Like, sure, you're going to come on strong. You're going to be aggressive and, and obnoxious about your Christianity, and that's going to turn people off, right? If you keep, you know, spewing all this stuff, everyone is just going to want to stay away from you. So what you've got to do is spew it with a sugar coating. You've got to spew it in a friendly way, in a, in a kind tone of voice that lulls people in, so that by the time you, you, you pour the acid in, it's too late. It's too late. They can't get away, right? It's, it's a strategy, in other words. We could look at this and say gentleness and respect, that's a strategy for effectively winning people over. But that's not what it is. That's not what Peter's giving us at all. Instead, when he counsels gentleness... A kind of gentleness that, that the fearful cannot have. What he's doing is, he's saying, think of it this way, like when you are anxious, when you are fearful, and that leads to that aggressiveness, that, that um, conflict, what you're revealing is a fear that God will fail. A fear that God's truth won't be strong enough. When you set that fear aside, when you set aside the fear that the gospel won't be enough, then you can show your confidence in Christ, and that comes out as gentleness. Because you no longer have the anxiety that, that leads you to force things. You no longer have the anxiety that leads you to get in people's face and confront them. You believe that Christ is enough, that the Spirit's power will work and it changes the way you do it. You're not sticking your hand into the mousetrap, gritting your teeth, worried about the pain that will result. Instead, you're thinking about the glory that comes when the hope that is in you is spread by the Spirit to others. And respect. We talked about this last time. The respect that we're told we ought to have. When you don't show respect to people, what you are showing is that you're looking at the evil that they do. You're regarding the evil that they've done or that they're capable of doing. You're afraid of what they'll do and how bad they are, that sort of thing. And so you say things like, hey, you've got to earn my respect. Prove to me that, that you're not what you seem to be, and then I'll treat you the way you'd like to be treated. We saw last week that that's not what God expects of us. We must treat everyone made in the image of God, which is everyone, every human being, with respect. Because 
what we're honoring when we do that is not the person themselves, or at least not primarily. What we're honoring is the image of God in them. In that sense, no one needs to earn your respect. Everyone is due your respect by virtue of the image of God in them. And when we show them disrespect, when we treat them callously, it reflects on God. On God. All of this boils down to the sense in which the battleground for us isn't the world. The battleground is the heart. All of our fears, I think, face outward. We look at the world and we imagine what it can do to us and and all of the pitfalls, and, and they fill us with fear. And we think that if only the world would change, then we too would change. We wouldn't be this way if the world were different. There is a change that allows us not to be so fearful, but it is not changing the world. It is changing the heart. Peter says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have no fear of them. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's the point of it all. This is not a passage on defending the faith. This is not a passage on don't be so fearful. This is a passage on honoring the Lord as holy and all that results as a consequence. When we honor the Lord as holy, our fear subsides. When you're fearful, Jesus is an implausible idea that you're trying to push off on intelligent people. And that feels like a daunting task. You've got to choose your moment, right? But when you lack fear, Jesus is the King of all creation. He is the Holy One of Israel. And it seems ridiculous to stay silent about Him. Ridiculous to be afraid of the consequences. Because those who are zealous for good have nothing to fear. And if they should suffer, they will receive a blessing. As our sense of Christ as holy wanes, then we slip into despair. We keep quiet. We even grow bitter. But the answer to this is not to start thinking positive thoughts. It's not to turn up the volume on our witness. It's not to go to anger management, although all of those things could help us at one point or another. All those do, though, is address symptoms. The answer is to honor Christ, to honor Christ the Lord more in his holiness so that the fear loses its hold on us. The more we honor him as holy, the more we exalt him as king, the less the fear can hold on, the less the fear can stand in the way. Honor Christ as holy and hope will abound. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.